This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by the great Dan Feinberg. THR's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan? Very, very little. What are we fighting about this week, Leslie? I don't think we're fighting about anything, really, except maybe you getting mad at me because I was booing Carlos Correa. Look, you've got to boo who you've got to boo. All I know is some people were very excited by last week's contentious Warner Brothers Discovery chatter. Some people were very uncomfortable and felt that uh, Work Mommy and Work Daddy were were fighting and uh, people were concerned about that. So we apologize to anyone who... I'm not apologizing. We weren't. We weren't arguing. We were just... We were debating. It was a spirited debate about Warner Brothers Discovery and honestly, it was a lot of fun to, to get into it, especially because it was fresh off of that earnings call like so many things were swirling last week with all of the warner discovery rumors and honestly the rumor mill's gotten a little bit better this week but yeah expect the big layoffs coming up soon but i'm getting off topic but anyway what i'm trying to say is thank you everyone for the wonderful feedback about last week's episode which obviously if you missed it featured our spirited debate about warner discovery a great interview with fx chief john landgraf and so much more it was a good episode, but this week is going to be a good episode, too, Leslie. Yeah, that's right. This is episode 181. Dan, do you feel old? I do. And we've got another good one. We've got the return of our showrunner spotlight segment as we're joined this week by Abby Jacobson and Will Graham, the creators and showrunners of Amazon's A League of Their Own series. Disclaimer, the Will Graham, who is a creator of Amazon's League of Their Own series, is not the Will Graham who attempted to bring down Hannibal Lecter for three seasons of NBC's Hannibal. I think that's important to designate there, Dan. I, I don't want our <laughs> listeners to be confused, Leslie. Sure. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, let's dive into this week's headlines and start where we usually start. Number one. In castings, former orphan black star Tatiana Maslany is returning to AMC and will topline the cable network's second and rice drama, Invitation to a Bonfire. The Emmy winner next stars in Marvel's She-Hulk. Elsewhere, Apple pitchman John Hamm is upending his Emmy-nominated Everyone But John Hamm commercial and will star in season three of The Morning Show for the streamer. At FX, Stranger Things breakout Joe Keery has joined the season five cast of FX anthology Fargo. And at Showtime, this one I'm excited about, Six Feet Under and Can't Hardly Wait alum Lauren Ambrose is going to play the adult version of Van on Showtime's Yellow Jackets with Liv Houston, the young actress behind the 1990s set character, also promoted to series regular. Boom. 
That is fun casting, and I have never seen so many people in my Twitter feed referencing previous tweets where they suggested that Lauren Ambrose should play the adult version of Van, of Van in the second season of Yellow Jackets. So apparently this is a piece of casting that the entire internet will get credit for, and therefore I hope that the entire internet is at least temporarily happy about something. Absolutely. And you can go back and listen to our great showrunner spotlight special episode featuring Ashley Lyle and Bart Nickerson, the creators and showrunners of Yellow Jackets, opening up all about the season one finale and what to expect in season two from our special episode 151. That was published January 16th, right after the finale, Dan. Indeed, a good episode. In new series orders, Atlanta favorite Brian Tyree Henry will star in the drug ream drama Sinking Spring, based on the book Dope Thief for Apple, which has also signed on Eva Longoria to lead the cast of the dramedy Land of Women. In news from the weekend that you might have missed, Abbott Elementary led all winners at this summer's Television Critics Association Awards, taking home four, four wins, including the prestigious Program of the Year Prize. Other winners included Mandy Moore, Succession, The Babysitter's Club, Ted Danson and Steve Martin receiving career achievement honors, and I Love Lucy nabbing the Heritage Award, whatever that is. Says the former president of the TCA. <laughs> uh, anyone who knows me knows that the Heritage Award confuses me and only confuses me more. But congratulations to all of our winners. And speaking of Quinta Brunson, the Emmy-nominated star of Abbott Elementary has signed her first overall deal, and it's a multiple-year pact with Warner Brothers Television, the studio behind the ABC comedy. And of course, we had Quinta Brunson on before she broke big, too. You can listen to our interview with her back in episode 149 from January. In renewal news, Stars has picked up Power Book 3, Raising Canaan, for a third season, while Apple is bringing back Rose Byrne's comedy... Well, I guess it's a comedy. I mean, technically speaking, I'm not sure what else it is. Physical, also for a third season. And wrapping up headlines on the broadcast front, ABC has added the Ram the Ramon Rodriguez drama series Will Trent to its mid-season schedule. Dan, this is more of that year-round programming, trying to get pilot season all year round and basically just keeping the development pipeline going and not being structured to just a few short months of trying to figure out your next shows. Yes. And, so. and this is uh, sort of all part of the ongoing narrative of why when September rolls around and people are like, Ooh, it's September. That means the new broadcast season, there will be 20 to 50 new shows on all of my favorite broadcasting networks. Don't expect that this year. It will be much less new television on broadcast TV or not new television, but much fewer new programs as part of the new television on broadcast TV. That's right. Yeah, last year we saw a real big push for for a lot of mid-season shows coming out and with, and with the new year. It you know, September is very very crowded. You've got all the the returning shows coming back in in the same 1 to 2 week period and then to launch a new one it's super expensive plus to you know to kind of get all of the production and everything else done you're you're hitting the gas really fast and yeah, not not all TV is made great that way. Anyway, up next Number two. It's official. Disney, thanks to its multiple streaming platforms, has for the first time topped Netflix when counting subscribers for all of its various streaming platforms. Last week, of course, we got very, very contentious after the Warner Brothers Discovery earnings report hit. This week... Yeah, contentious debate. Debate. Spirited. 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 Absolutely spirited. This week... 
Disney did its own quarterly earnings report, and now we're going to fight to the death over it. Actually, there wasn't really all that much no, exciting no, no. tone outs, but, <laughs> but you're still going to fill us in on some basic details. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, the Mouse House reported its quarterly earnings this week and revealed that when factoring in Disney+, Plus, Hulu, and ESPN, all three services combined, total subscribers reached 221 million. That is more than the 220.7 million that Netflix reported in July. The big question, of course, is, uh, is that it remains unclear how many come from Disney's streaming bundle offering as all three services posted individual gains during the second quarter. That, however, while that was big news, Disney unseating Netflix, that's going to be a headline any day of the year if that happens, anytime someone tops Netflix because... Well, they all got into streaming to basically compete with Netflix. So that is a big deal. But the biggest news, however, was the price hikes that are coming for all three platforms as Disney also unveiled its ad-supported Disney Plus tier will launch December 8th in the U.S. The price hikes, of course, come as Disney spent $1 billion on streaming during the third quarter mm -hmm. as they continue to look to increase its revenue per user. So what does this all mean? Well, you're going to pay more. Disney Plus with ads is going to cost eight bucks a month. That's the same price that Disney Plus currently costs without ads. As a result, the premium ad-free version of Disney Plus will run $11 a month or 110 bucks for the year. That's a $3 monthly increase or 30 bucks annually. Hulu is going to see its, its um, price hikes for its ad-supported and ad-free tier beginning October 10th. The ad-supported tier will go from six from $7 a month or $70 a year to $8 a month or $80 a year. And the free tier, currently $13, is going to run up to $15 bucks without an option for a yearly subscription, as was the case before. So, And then, of course, ESPN previously announced that their prices are rising from $7 bucks and $70 a year to $10 a month and $100 a year beginning August 23rd. So... Dan, this is basically we can talk about how much the Disney brands matter because they unseated Netflix. When you take down the champ, that's a big deal. And yeah, that that could be one's takeaway from all of the announcements. And I'm totally fine with it if it is. I, it feels like a bit of a cheat to me. Netflix has one brand. Oh, it's a total and, cheat. And Disney and ESPN and Hulu are three different brands until they all come together like Voltron, which we've discussed, oh, only about a thousand different times might or might not happen. And you can hear... Have we discussed Voltron? We haven't discussed Voltron, but I, I feel like Voltron is always sort of in the background of the discussion. Uh, and we, you know, you asked John Langerhoff directly about it last week, and he sort of talked around it, and that's fine. Uh, yeah, I, it's it's a cheat, and it means whatever it does or doesn't mean. The <laughs> The irritation of the price hikes is... An irritant, and that's just all it is, but it's one of those irritants where at a certain point it becomes for consumers a, a death by a thousand cuts. There's there's no way that this is a thing that is going to make consumers happy. So, you know, you, you want to tell me, okay, we've raised the price of our service by $30 a year. Okay, I nod at that and I go, fine, that's that's just fine. But yeah, but we're also spending a <laughs> billion dollars a year on content or however many billions on content. Those Marvels and Star Wars shows aren't cheap. They, they are not, but it's, it's, it's just just the irritation of a the percentage increase that this represents, but also just that everyone keeps doing it and no one is simply saying, OK, we're going to actually keep our prices the same for a year. So if Netflix is raising its prices constantly, if we're on the brink of whatever price increases are coming for the HBO Discovery Max come next year and surely those things 
will be happening it adds up and that's how i feel every month when i get my stupid spectrum bill which the only reason that i still have cable is well if you bet on the fact that that's the only way to watch the dodgers you'd be right everybody knew the only reason you still have cable um yeah and so it this but it's like we're paying 180 bucks and yeah, it includes internet, but it's, come on, I don't want 90% of this stuff. If, if Spectrum had a streaming app, cable would be gone. You can be sure it's a conversation that's that's happening. Uh, no, it, it's it's just frustrating and it's frustrating for consumers because the, the whole streaming is going to eliminate the cable bundle and the cable bundle was what was costing you so much and streaming is going to end up making everything a la carte and therefore people are going to save money. I, I feel yeah, as because if, they've pushed back on doing cable a la carte. At, at, at this point, I feel as if everyone has very, very definitely realized that really and truly streaming is not going to save anyone any money in the long run. It is, in fact, probably going to end up costing people significantly more, more in the long run. They may get more programming and options, which I think is also probably unquestionably true that, you know, the, yeah, all I the, mean, look at yeah. and look at the programming. It's getting better. You're spending, you know, these companies are spending millions and millions of dollars on content, not just with, you know, content acquisitions, but the green lights of, of some of the stuff that they're making. A lot of it is you look at Lord of the Rings. It's a great example. But of course, you get Lord of the Rings if you pay to get your free shipping for your toilet paper from Amazon. Right. You know, House of the Dragon technically is an HBO original. So you pay to get HBO, you pay to get HBO Max. If you're an HBO subscriber, you get HBO Max for free, all this other stuff. But, you know, in, in the larger sense, you, you have to find a way to monetize this stuff. You know, we talked last week about David Zosloff and how he didn't feel it was a good idea to spend $90 million on a movie like Batgirl and do a big, you know, a, a, a made for streaming movie that costs that much money. And especially when you consider marketing costs and everything, it's, it's easily over a hundred million. So, Okay, so what's your return on that if you put it on streaming? Can you really measure subscribers who are coming in on that? Obviously, they're going to get whatever you know internal data that they're going to have. But is that a good idea? Because how do you monetize it? So now you've got all these these streamers, Disney Plus, HBO Max, and Netflix, all adding ad supported tiers in the in the coming months. So you got to get some return on that investment, right? But you know what? I I am in my cough cough some. 40 years. You know what I have never once for a single second of my entire life worried about? The Walt Disney Company's ability to monetize things. That is never <laughs> anything that has kept me up at night. So the fact that they well, feel... Well, you're, you're not an executive at Disney, Dan. You, you don't think that they're thinking about this of stuff? Of course they are, but you know... Look at how much money these streamers are losing. But Disney is not losing money. So No, because the theme parks are back open again, but they had how, ma how many, what was it, a year or how many months that where all of their theme parks across the globe were closed? You're not going to make me pity Disney, I'm Leslie. Not, I'm not trying to make anyone pity Disney, but I'm trying to explain from a business side of things why they're doing all of this stuff. And you're going to look at it, at, you know, as I presume, from the critical standpoint, which is why, hi, you and me make TV's top five, but... Look, I get it. As a consumer, I don't want to pay more for any of this stuff. I mean, not that I pay for it right now, but at the same time, it's like, you know, there's how do you make money? You know, I got to stop saying, you know, but in, in the larger sense, you have to find a way to monetize this stuff. You can't keep making $200 million shows for a streaming platform if your subscriber numbers stall. 
You can if you have uh, if you have a movie studio and theme parks that are printing money. It is all just money that's coming into the Disney company. It is, but you have operating expenses from various dif- from from all the different folds of the companies too, right? You know, so it's not like okay, well, you're spending billions and billions of dollars on on TV and movie content, but the. For, if it's made specifically, exclusively for streaming, how are you monetizing that if you don't have an ad supported tier or if you're not raising subscription prices? You are right, and I don't care. <laughs> I know. That, that's, that, in, in short, that's the segment. There you go. <laughs> you are, of course, 100% right, and it doesn't matter to me because you're not going to make me worry about the Disney bottom line. I, look. <laughs> I'm not (laughs) on a personal level. I don't care about anyone's bottom line, but on a professional level, that's my job. Oh, I care. I care about our corporate overlords bottom. But it's also you (laughs) and you care about good content. Right. And, And to make good content, to get top name actors, to get top name directors, to get studio space, to get showrunners, to everything else that costs more. As we say, what, for the past 180 episodes? It's a lot of money. It's all I'm saying. It's a lot of money. And since I am a subscriber to all three of those various services, and since I have a hatred of having to watch commercials, whatever it is, I will I will keep adding it. Uh, you know, the apparently I believe I could be wrong about this. So do not quote me. I believe the only one of the bundles that actually isn't raising in price is the no ad Hulu, is no ad Hulu, no ad Disney uh, ESPN Plus. I believe that bundle is not changing price, but I could totally be wrong. And you're giving me a skeptical look on this. I, I honestly have no idea. It's like you, you, what you're describing sounds like an algebra equation. It's just, it's just more and more lines on my monthly credit card statement is all it is. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's uh, every price is going up. Uh, subscriber numbers. Didn't go up as much as people wanted them to, but thanks to International, they went up comfortably. So, yeah, all just is what it is. <laughs> yep. And it's, and it's again, you know, you want to talk about the strength of Disney. It's in brands, right? Hulu has FX. Disney, of course, Disney Plus has Marvel and Lucasfilm. I think those are important things to, to designate. And that definitely is going to help you, you know, keep those numbers growing if you can. So, I mean, it's, it's a must-have. If you if you care about those those things, you have to have that service, and you'll pay the increased prices. And at the same time, Disney's sitting here and saying, "Yeah, we're great, man. Combined, we've got we've got you. You don't have broadcast. We have all the the broadcast shows the next day, or most of them. We have the next day on Hulu. We have the FX library on Hulu. We have all this amazing animation on Hulu. We have, by the way, Hulu has its own originals, including one that won an Emmy, The Handmaid's Tale. You know, we've got great programming." We have all these different boxes, and then you go over to Disney Plus, and we've got National Geographic, which is a huge brand, and, and everything else. And then, you know, and, and then you look at Warner Discovery, like we talked last week. These are two powerhouse brands that are emerging, you know, and these services are only going to get heftier and heftier over time because they're leaning hard into what brands they have, and they're building upon them. At the same time, Netflix is over here saying, uh, okay, we got Bridgerton, uh, we got Stranger Things, we're turning those into brands, we're doing live events, and we're doing all these other things, and they're trying very hard to compete. But at the same time, how do you compete when you don't have these brands and all these big companies, the DCs, the Marvels, everything else, they're going to stream on their own services. They're not going to sell to Netflix anymore. They're not going to take take their enemy's money and bolster their service. Those days are gone, at least for now, until until our business becomes cyclical and it'll, it'll go back to everyone wanting to sell to third parties. That could be a long time in the future. 
<laughs> I've been waiting. I don't think I don't know when, if that's going to happen anytime soon, but <laughs> who, I, I wouldn't put it past it happening at some point. I wouldn't either, but I'll, but when it happens, I know that you'll let me know. <laughs> yes, definitely. And yeah, I looked at, you know, you know, Zaslav said that Warners will continue to, to sell to third parties too, but their big priority is servicing their own, you know, feeding their own animals. So anyway, up next. Number three. Let's take a look at award season. Some big news this week, Dan. The Emmys are a month out. NBC and the TV Academy this week revealed that the Saturday Night Live star Kenan Thompson will host the primetime ceremony, which will air both on the broadcast network and stream on Peacock. Um, duh. <laughs> well, so I think I think duh is kind of ultimately where they ended. Safe up. choice. Yeah, it's 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 <laughs> that. Like, there's there's no way that they went to exactly one person and it was Kenan Thompson and he said yes and that was as easy as that it, because we're a month before the Emmys and they didn't have a host, which is not the way that anyone likes to do it or normally does it. So there's no question that there were clearly conversations that were having being had either about other people or Keenan plus other people. If you'll recall, it was the Michael Che, uh, Colin Jost combo plus lots of SNL cameos last time NBC, they had the Emmys. So maybe they were contemplating doing something like that this year and decided to just let Keenan do it. I, I like this mostly because I like the idea of everybody simply accepting, acknowledging that Keenan Thompson is an institution that, that for, that for everyone to to just to simply sit, take a step back and say, Keenan Thompson is a very, very important person to this network and giving him this platform, even if I don't think it's a platform that aligns meaningfully with his skill set, really, um, I, I just I like the idea of anybody respecting Keenan Thompson because Keenan Thompson has had this long running career of being a little bit under the radar, despite ridiculous and unprecedented longevity so yeah but also don't forget you know keenan thompson is so important to nbc that they just canceled his primetime show <laughs> it's true it's true so sorry for canceling your primetime show please come host our please take our money <laughs> please come host our telecast honoring a bunch of primetime shows that aren't on nbc so you know it's this this makes sense it's uh it's totally reasonable totally fair he he deserves recognition and whatever platforming anyone wants to give him. So that was, that was my response. Other, other than like you just said, duh, you know, he, he feels like an entirely reasonable, somewhat defaulty selection. Yeah. And, you know, since we're talking about Emmys, I know when we kind of speculated or weighed in with our, our favorite picks of, of what we would like to see, I know you obviously were big on, on Amber Ruffin, who has a show on Peacock. And I think, you know, the Emmys would be a hell of a platform if they were to get Amber Ruffin out on stage to do some kind of bit or something that that could serve as a platform to get more eyeballs on on what she's doing over there. Too. Oh, it would be utterly asinine if they didn't. And I, I assume they will find a way to work her into the show. Musical number with way. the cast of Girls 5 Eva there. Boom. There's your opening. There's your opening segment. The cast of Girls 5 Eva with Kenan Thompson. Sure. Why not? The whole thing can just be big old promotion for Peacock. I mean, and it should be. They desperately, more than any other streamer, they need it more than anyone else. 
It is it is true, and I assume you will hear many constant references to Peacock, but probably also many jokes about Peacock. Yeah, exactly. And in other awards news, the Golden Globes are back on track to return to NBC next year. As our colleague Scott Feinberg reported this week, that comes after a year of backlash over the Hollywood Foreign Press Association's lack of diversity and alleged unethical conduct. Dan, I know you have strong feelings about this one. I'm just going to kick it right to you. <laughs> have at it. I have opinions, and I can I can sort of go HFPA. Go for it. <laughs> I can, Open season. I can go either way as required. Here, uh, the the first way to go is is this is idiotic and embarrassing and and pathetic. There's there's nothing else to be said about it except that I'm going to say a lot more about it. So there obviously is. This is completely unnecessary. We we spent decades making fun of the HFPA and making fun of their choices and making fun of the Golden Globes and all of that. We spent years being embarrassed ourselves that we had to take them seriously, that we had to pretend they were a relevant organization, that we had to pretend that they were not just relevant, but that there was significance to the things that they gave their approval or disapproval to. And basically, the Los Angeles Times gave us all an out. And they gave us an out. They gave NBC an out. They said, here are all the things that you already thought you knew or already suspected, but here they are in print to be disgusted and horrified by. And even NBC was unable to not be embarrassed to have a group with the diversity problems, with the ethical problems. And none of that even gets into the fact that they really had at no point taste in movies or television. And yet that's what an award show is theoretically supposed to be about. So basically they, the LA times gave everybody an out and NBC took advantage of it for one year and that was it. Um, I, like, like to me, like, okay, so let's say you have a favorite fancy restaurant that you go to every year on your anniversary. And let's say that every year they give you wonderful food, wonderful service, and it, you love it. It's a part of your life. And one year you get E. coli poisoning. Well, okay. The things that that restaurant has contributed to your life over all those years. You go, the E. coli poisoning was a one-off thing. We can move on. But let's say you go to a fast casual restaurant simply because it's down the street or you like their guacamole and you get E. coli poisoning five times in a year. If you keep going back to that restaurant at a certain point, you come to deserve the E. coli poisoning. You have to accept yeah, the it's, definition of insanity. <laughs> exactly. And so let's say that the Oscars are like that first restaurant and that last year's slap and also the envelope blunder a couple of years ago and really a few other things. Those are the E. coli poisonings. But on the other hand, they've done enough service over the years to all of us as an institution that we can accept it. The Golden Globes are unquestionably the fast casual restaurant that's given you E. coli poisoning five times in the last year. And if you keep going back, basically at a certain point, you're not going back for the guacamole. You're going back for the E. coli. And that's just what the Golden Globes are. So they've made some cosmetic 
changes to the institution. Unquestionably, they added a few new reporters, which is good. Of course it is. They added a few new black reporters because they had zero. And that is, of course, a good thing. It doesn't correct the institutional problems. It doesn't correct the decades of complete embarrassment. It's just unnecessary. And also, I'm assuming that most of our listeners out there are just regular people, civilians. I know many of them are in the industry in various different ways. Some are journalists, etc. What did you lose from your life last year when the Golden Globes decided to give out a couple of awards and a very, very little private thing where they tweeted them? I mean, that's the other thing is everyone made fun of the Golden Globes and they got canceled by NBC and the HFPA was like, yeah, we're just giving out our awards anyway. And no one thought that that was a direct insult to NBC and to all of us because it was it was 100 percent that there should be a, a year on the Golden Globe schedule that has uh, all awards were not given this year because we were too shameful to give awards. Instead, they just gave out awards. I bet you they even sent baubles to people last year, even if some of them might, some of the people might have returned them. So there was no point at which they were punished other than they didn't get to be on NBC for a year. It, it's, it's just so completely unnecessary. And that is where it bugs me. Now, of course, the thing to step back and say is all awards are unnecessary. This whole thing is unnecessary. You're giving a lot of anger and annoyance to something that is completely meaningless. So now I'm going to take my step. Have you met Dan? Have you met me? This is what I do. So now let's take a step back from my reaction, which is NBC and everyone involved should be embarrassed and anyone who shows up to get their awards should be embarrassed. Anyone who accepts the hosting gig should be embarrassed. Everybody should be embarrassed. So, but why is this happening? <laughs> well, part of why this is happening is ratings. The ratings, been, the ratings, we're getting there, we're getting there. It's a whole, it's a whole story. It starts with ratings. It starts with ratings because some people still did watch the show. Ratings were down, but NBC will like whatever the night of ratings is. But more than that, I mean, Peacock will like it more than NBC will. Will probably. they? Who's going to watch it on Peacock? I don't know. Who's, who's going to who don't have linear TV? Well, and the people who don't have linear TV are like, man, all I wanted to do was cut the cord. But I just can't give up the Golden Globes. <laughs> and someone is <laughs> like, fair. thank God Peacock has the Golden Globes by cable. <laughs> but but no. The, the truth is, and I've had this conversation with a number of people in the past few months on various different industry sides, a couple people who are publicists and a couple people who are more developmenty. Some people missed the Golden Globes, not because they missed the drunken embarrassment of it, not because they missed hobnobbing with the Hollywood Foreign Press at the Beverly Hilton for a night, but they liked the structure that it provided to the award season because it was a way of getting out there. And last year, the Oscars did honestly feel a tiny bit abrupt. Yes, there were 800 critics groups. Yes, there were the Critics' Choice Awards that like to pretend that they're meaningful. They're not. Um, but, uh, but last year, the Golden Globes were missing as a data point. And that's, and that's a lot of what this is. The Golden Globes were also missing as a promotional opportunity for countless pieces of film and television programming that really like having an audience that very clearly 
is invested in such things. And so the ability to have commercials for these things, the ability to have what is basically a glorified commercial across the board for these things. So, so, you know, so yes, you boiled it down very simply, like everything I just said can be boiled down to money. Um, but, but so these are all the reasons why it's important to NBC to have the Golden Globes back, theoretically, why it's important to lots of different industry, marketing, publicity, promotional, awards campaigner type people. And then there are the more, even more purely economical reasons um, that the ownership group that owns Dick Clark Productions, that has a stake in the HFPA, I believe they also have a stake in the Beverly Hilton. There, there's, there's a lot of money going in circles that doesn't exist without the Golden Globes. I should also add that that same group is also part of the ownership group that uh, that has ties to us. So so that is that is a thing. Uh, so yeah, it's it's money in all of these different ways. The only way I can justify it to myself is I missed the structure of having the Golden Globes as part of the award season, which is endless regardless. But if it's endless without these kind of data points, it's it's more frustratingly endless. But no. So anyway, that was that was a really, really long thing. This is this is dumb. There's sh no nobody should have looked at the fact that there wasn't a Golden Globe la ceremony last year and said, my God, this is a horrible thing that we have to to rectify. Somebody should have said, if we want a ceremony, we want a new organization to give these awards and an entirely different show that can still be at the Beverly Hilton. People can still get drunk. That There are still lots of different ways Dick Clark Productions can still produce it. It just doesn't need to be through the HFPA and it doesn't need to be called the Golden Globes because at a certain point, there's been enough E. coli. Can't we at least give somebody new the opportunity to give us E. coli poisoning? But no, the E. coli poisoning will return to NBC in January. Yeah, and it's worth noting that the HFPA and NBC declined comments. So still looking for a formal date. And I'm sure once that's all locked in, you'll get a be inundated with its official story. So and there you go. But guess what? I'm not doing that thing I just did again. So consider that our statement on on the Golden Globes returning. And I could have saved us all around 10 minutes by simply saying, but why? Or just <laughs> anyway, up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. 
Will Graham and Abby Jacobson, the co-creators and showrunners of Amazon's update of the beloved 1992 feature A League of Their Own, join us this week on the podcast. Graham, who also has Amazon's Daisy Jones and the Six adaptation in the works, counts Mozart in the Jungle and Odd Mom Out among his credits. Jacobson, meanwhile, stars in the new league as Carson, with the role marking her return to series regular television following her breakout gig creating and co-starring in Comedy Central's Broad City. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. So let, let's start at the beginning. Touching a beloved property likely of their own is a very tall order. Will, this started with you. Can you talk us through the very first conversations that you had? Was this an idea that you brought to Sony? Was it an open writing assignment? How did this all begin? No, this was 100% um, something that uh, that came from us. Um, and, and I went to Sony because I, I love the original movie. And I think I had always... You know, I was like a little queer kid. I uh, knew that there was something different about me. I didn't know what it was. I played Little League Baseball for seven years because my dad was like, we will we will find an athlete in there somewhere. And my coach was like, um, he is very emotional. Uh, uh, I cried a lot, um, which I guess is fitting for... <laughs> <laughs> There is crying in baseball. <laughs> and I proved it um, as a young as a young boy. And there was something about the movie. It was one of my mom's favorite movies. It was on in my house a lot. And there was sort of this feeling of, um, you know, it's okay to be on the field, even though you don't look like what people expect or feel like what people expect to be on the field. So then a, a couple of years ago, I was um, shooting Mozart in the Jungle in Venice. And uh, the hotel that we were shooting in was really loud. So I sort of put the movie on in the background just to have something to kind of wash out the gondoliers. And then I just started to think about the, the stories underneath it. And I've always loved history. And you sort of felt from the movie, I think a lot of people did, the, the queer subtext, and queer stories. Um, and so I started to to just look into what people at that time knew about um, those stories and then went to Sony and said, you know, here's roughly what I think a version of this show could look like. Um, and I think it could be something really exciting and different that takes um, what the movie does to uh, a much wider lens. Um, and they unexpectedly said yes uh, to that which um, was uh, terrifying and exciting. And, and around that time, you know, I think we, we always knew that this was a show that was going to be written and created by a team. It's about teams and the breadth of stories that it's doing is just bigger than any one person's experience. And Abby and I knew each other a little bit, and, and I was just a massive fan of, um, of Broad City. Uh, and so we started to talk about it and, um, and, and, and went from there. You know, and of course, this is not a straight up reboot. No one here is playing Kit or Dottie. As two queer filmmakers, how much did you guys know about the private lives of the players when you first developed this take? Abby, I know, you know, you, there was some kind of crossover experience that you had while shooting Broad City at one point. No, I had, I had, didn't know a lot about the, queer stories uh that that this queer experiences of the real women in the league until we started doing research i think i maybe had some i like i kind of assumed a, a little bit uh and then we we started to do research and then we were we realized just how many queer women were in the league and uh but no when when i was doing brown city and right before will 
was telling me about this project and, and asked me to do it with him. I had been doing this uh, montage in Broad City of, of really powerful women and our editor, one of our editors at the time, Liz Merrick, recommended we include Tony Stone. And I, I didn't know who Tony Stone was. And I was so excited to include a photo of her in this montage of really uh, strong and influential, powerful women. And then Will had, uh, just for people who don't know, Tony Stone is one of uh, three women who played in the Negro Leagues. Uh, along with Connie Morgan and Mamie Johnson, who Max's character is um, one of uh, is specifically inspired by among, you know, a lot of other women who played baseball at the time. But so I, I had just known of Tony. And when Will approached me, I was like, I just like I was like, I just learned about this very important story in American baseball and women's sports. And I hadn't known it. And then it was just sort of the more we researched, the more we sort of uncovered all these stories that weren't told in the film. And the more it was, it's sort of, um, I never said this, but who, who's the artist that's like, and then you, you start with the block of clay and you like find the sculpture. And the research was sort of like find us finding the stories that really like were exciting to tell. Um, no, I mean, I think that's part of what was amazing about it is as soon as you look into the research, I think we were both like, oh, my God, like there is so much to this story that kind of immediately the challenge became like, how do you bring people into it and where do you start and not what are we going to do with it? And I think the the throughout those authentic stories that haven't been told because I think the movie sort of created a version of the story that everyone loved. And as the players said, most people had forgotten about the AAGPBL. People didn't even believe them when they said that they had played pro ball. And, and the movie did so much, but at the same time, the parts that didn't fit into that story just sort of stopped getting talked uh, about, you know, and that definitely includes the queer community, but also players of color, both within the league and outside the league. So I think we, we kind of quickly realized we had the opportunity to tell a story that was really about this whole generation and to tell it through that same lens of joy um, that, that the movie has, but to, to bring that to a totally different set of stories. Yeah. And I know, Abby, you've mentioned, you know, in our previous interview that the fear is people will see the, the poster for the show and presume that you guys are doing a woke version of the movie. Um, for you, you both, what's your message to those who may be nervous about the show? I, yeah, I think watch it. And then, yeah, there, all these characters are really, as we just said, really inspired by history and real stories that that weren't uh in in the film and yeah i think just watch it and then you'll see it's not just that i hope yeah i think it, it's look we totally understand um there's something where you're like oh no they're touching a classic and they're redoing god is there going to be another version of the gina davis character what's that going to feel like this isn't doing that I and mean, we don't really think of this as a reboot of the movie as much as a kind of reimagining of these stories. Um, and, and again, it's, it all comes from real history. Um, I think part of why people at first might not think that is because we don't really tell joyful stories about um, queer people at, at this point in history. But really early on in the process, Abby and I started talking to um, women who were queer who played in league. Mabel Blair has has come out in the last month and she was one of those in a huge part of it. Yeah, let's just 
take a sec for Maybell. She's 95 years old and just came out as gay for the first time in her life, which is, I mean, and just, I, sorry, I, I'm going to, I get emotional just talking about it. It's so incredible and so moving. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but go on. No, no. I mean, so do we. You saw uh, what happened on stage when she um, did come out and Abby and I were both kind of seated around her. And I'm pretty sure that we both were sobbing, um, but trying to to hold um, our composure together. And that was an amazing moment for us because we we spent four years talking to Maybell and at the beginning of our conversations, you know, she was kind of always talking in a voice like this, even when there was no one else around. Um, because I think it it felt like such a big step to her to, to use these words and be open about it. And the fact that she now feels like she can do that in public, it's just, it's an incredible moment and, and an, just one incredible part of the experience of making the show. And I mean, the fact that she did just come out at 95 shows you how hidden that was and what that must have felt like to be, you know, to find a community that was this little pocket of this community within the league and to feel seen in that way. I mean, and also, you know, I don't I don't know if you've seen the the documentary A Secret Love, which also explores how this was such like a little moment in history where these women were able to find each other. Um, yeah. But Mabel said in one of our first conversations, like Abby and I were pretty nervous. Um, we went down to see her in Sunset Beach and we sort of knew from other people that maybe she was ready to talk to us about this, but we were not exactly sure how to bring it up. And we like strategized in the car on the way down. Um, and it was an amazing conversation. And one of the things she said that really stuck with us, I think, is we asked, like, what it was like to, to be there and to find all these people who were like her. And she was like, oh, it was a party. And there's something amazing about that. You know, in the 1940s, obviously a really challenging time for the world, but also for queer people, for athletes of color, that they got to have a community and have a party and fall in love with the people that they wanted to fall in love with. And I don't think it was easy to all the things that Abby was saying. We, we know that it wasn't, but to me, it really brought home as queer people, we create community kind of whenever we are and wherever we are and create joy wherever we are. And, um, and that's part of, you know, a lot of the show is about finding your team on a few different levels. Uh, right, finding your baseball team and shaping that, and that's a huge part of of the show. But also finding your community. Yeah, and there's also you know obviously that famous scene in the movie where the black woman throws that foul ball back to the peaches, and it's kind of you know Abby and I have talked about this before. Maybe it's a little bit too subtle nod at how the league didn't allow women of color to play, and I think that that was that scene in particular was among the topics that you guys were, um, were lucky enough to talk to the late Penny Marshall about. When you look back on, on the original pitch, was that scene in particular kind of your selling part of your selling point to Sony to get to get the rights here saying this one scene, there's so much more to unpack underneath? That. You know, honestly, I'm not sure that we focused as much on that scene, although everything that you're saying is true. And that character is based on Mamie Peanut Johnson, who did, along with her friend Rita, try out for the league and was turned away in a very similar way to the way that Max Shante Adams' character and 
clans, Bemisola, Camelo's character are turned away in the pilot. But I think what we did really focus on is look at this enormous story that in a similar way to the story of the AAG PBL before the movie came out, people really don't know. I mean, people barely are becoming cognizant of the story of the Negro Leagues in general, which is a huge chapter in baseball history. And people think this is, you know, some of the greatest players who ever uh, uh, were on the field. And and then the story of the women playing within that, you know, I think is um, is is still for the most part um, pretty unknown. Although there was a great play about Tony Stone, and there's been um, some great uh, books about their experiences. So I think that was a huge part of what we felt like needed to be part of the heart of the show, um, and it was part of why we sort of. And I remember Abby saying this early on, just saying like this really has to be about this whole generation. It can't be about this league. It can't just be about one team. Um, and the show sort of evolved from that idea. And there are a lot of the the different levels or gradations of, of racism and xenophobia in this period that you guys get to explore here. Specifically, what did you guys learn was different uh, with Latinx, with, with the Cuban players, and how those different levels of prejudice played out and, and in this world? Yeah, that was an aspect of, you know, that was not explored in the film at all, really. And I think there is a level of white, uh, the league, uh, the same way that the the presentation is so put upon the women uh, in terms of presentation, charm school, that the, I, there was this level of like white passing and, and sort of uh, expectation and sort of like, I mean, I think that that is just like very much in our society uh, and, and was for sure in the 1940s. And uh, we really explore, um, I, you know, actually, I, I, I recently just learned this. I actually think the most cu- current term is Latine. Just to, I just learned this. I've been saying Latinx and, and someone can correct the podcast, but I think it's kind of important. I just, I, I want to put that out there that like, this isn't, yeah. Anyway, um, so Roberta Calindras and um, plays a Mexican-American uh, character on the show and you know her family has been has owned a farm in in texas for over 100 years yet in the league um and this is some it, at some points more subtextual she's meant to feel like she is new to this country and um uh you know she gets coined the spanish striker because in quotes uh spain goes down easier than than mexico and has to deal with that it's sort of like t- taking away part of her identity and she's very knowledgeable or she's, she just has to deal with that while playing the game with all these other white players. And, you know, the connection with Esty, who's played by Priscilla Delgado, who's a Cuban player, um, you know, they're just sort of like paired together. And I think that that tension to try to conform is there while also trying to maintain your identity is, is something I, that, that was really important to us to show on the team and to show that experience. Yeah. I think um, just like Abby said, there were a lot of Latina players who played in the original league and, and a lot of them came from Cuba because there was such a vibrant um, baseball culture 
uh, in Cuba and, and still is. Um, and, and it was also a chance to explore the kind of bigger story of the color line in baseball, which is also reflected in the Major League Baseball. You know, we focus so much justifiably on the story of Jackie Robinson, but there were Latin players in the league from way before that, right? Who were sort of deemed to be white enough, but weren't fully accepted or they were racialized in, um, in different ways. And we wanted to be able to show that and to talk about that to what you were saying, Daniel, but with all these stories, we also really wanted to not make the obstacles into the stories. Um, you know, like, yes, Max has to deal with a different set of things than Carson and the Peaches do. And yes, uh, Roberta's character Lupe has to deal with um, a difference, but we really wanted to make the show about the character, uh, about the characters and about people connecting um, with their dreams and with that joy, despite those obstacles. I know that can sound like a small difference, but to us, it's a really big one. And, and then also just sort of while we're talking about the layers of difference, there's also the the representative Jewish player on the team. And I will I will always fixate on such things when they pop up in TV shows. Uh, what was your approach to to Shirley and why was the Jewishness not something you wanted to add to Carson's background, Abby? I found that um, no one be- like I mean, it's just such like the, the plotline on Broad City was that Alana never believed I was fully Jewish. And um you know, uh, we haven't really dived in at all to Carson's uh, religion at all. It didn't feel like the thing that we wanted to explore really with her character. And um, Shirley Cohen, who's played by Kate Berland, that just felt really natural. And, you know, Kate is Jewish and just that that added layer. And we don't really even explore it that much uh as much as we could and should um but um yes i too tend to gravitate toward them but no we didn't i don't think we felt like that was the thing that we wanted to explore with carson oh i'm sure i'm sure most people wouldn't be asking about this and it's also one of those things where i didn't ask this question (laughs) but it's still one of those things where you're listening and either your ears prick up when you hear all of the various references to her rabbi and all of that or it just sort of goes right over your head and goes on it's just it was such a fun uh you know kate obviously brought so much to that character and to lead to lean into that neuroticism that anxiety was so fun to write for and for her to play with so yeah yeah i mean we also brought, like just like abby said kate brought so much to that character and a really fun part of the show with all of the cast was sort of getting to really personalize the characters with them and and letting them sort of bring their own voices to it. But just like the other stories that we're talking about, um, it's all based on uh, actual research and actual stories. And there was one really famous, a a lot of Jewish players in the league, but Tybee Eisen was uh, a really uh, iconic member of the AGPBL who was Jewish and sort of carried that as as a part of her experience. And, you know, we wanted to honor that too. Love to hear that. (laughs) Well, for sort of for much of the season, there's the Max storyline that's kind of a parallel narrative with the Peaches narrative. uh, And there are interactions, obviously, but they they are going on different tracks. What did you guys learn about the structural uh, struggles of making sure that you maintained momentum in both storylines while sort of reassuring viewers, okay, they will dovetail at certain points? Yeah, I mean, I think that was always sort of this exciting challenge. This this show is very much a two-hander, sort of you're going back and forth between Carson's 
uh, journey with the peaches into Mac's journey into finding her team and into her world in Rockford. And I think that our, our, our goal was always to link these characters. And so while we're weaving back and forth between these worlds, um, you're, we're, we're leading to them meeting again. And that's sort of like the midway point of the season and their connection happens when they are on screen, but they're really going through some parallel journeys of really figuring themselves out. And, um, you know, they both they're, they're bonded by the love of baseball, but also their queerness. And until later in the season, when they're sort of exposed to a, a larger queer community, they end up being sort of like their queer community for the, the time being. And I just love, I mean, I love the Max and Carson relationship. I think it's, um, it's so important to the show. I think it is one that we paid a lot of attention to historically, what that kind of friendship would and could look like in 1943. And so it was definitely a challenge and one that was, was one of the more exciting ones. Yeah. I think, I mean, to what Abby's saying, I think our real focus was how can we tell these stories authentically? And then what does the structure of the show need to be in order for us to do that? And we also live in a world where TV, television, all of the things that that means now is doing really bold things um, uh, structurally. You know, there are characters on Game of Thrones that don't meet for four seasons, um, but they're still tied together because of the narrative. So I think we wanted to give ourselves the freedom to not feel like the stories constantly needed to fold into each other because that just wasn't the reality of their worlds at the time. But there are these really strong links between them that we're sort of telling the first chapter of in season one, but there's like a much bigger road of where that goes ahead. You know, the show very much honors the movie. You know, some of these characters, there are kind of archetypes um, and comparisons to characters from the film, but it also makes an important distinction in how different it is. How did you guys approach which parts of the movie were important to pay homage to? You know, I don't know if we had like a full like method to doing that. It sort of was, you know, the pilot is is probably the most homaging the movie. And that is also because of so much of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League and the tryouts and Chicago and all those things are based on what really happened in, in the real tryout and the charm school elements, all those things really happened. So they're, they're both in the film and in the show, but I think it was a mix of what was really fun. Uh, what, whether that was cinematically like me, uh, when Carson is running for the train, like I love that shot of like the inside of the train from the film where Dottie comes into the doorway and like keeps leaving frame. And there were, there were those kinds of things. So shots that we were just like loved and little like kisses to the film that we could do in, in, in the show were so fun. So what was fun. And then also just, you know, the no crying in baseball, that was just, I get quoted that the show hasn't even come out and I get quoted that like on the daily. And so we, you know, talked about that for so long, where to put it, should we put it, what are we doing? Like, and so, and then we'll finally put it in somewhere. And then it really works when it's done in a sort of subversive way said by a different character said by Jess and not the coach and acts as a totally different 
has a totally different meaning. It, it was just really exciting to see where and how things landed. Yeah, I mean, I think we we love the movie, um, and the movie's not going anywhere, um, and and people will always have it. So I think what we wanted to communicate, and this is something like Abby said that it was less conscious and more it, it sort of evolved, was to have these moments that are real love letters to the movie that really communicate to people watching, like we love this, um, this. Uh, the sort of DNA that this is coming from. But at the same time, like we said before, kind of the goal with the show was sort of to take that DNA of the tone and like regrow it in a separate Petri dish <laughs> where it could be its own thing. So hopefully the show speaks to that and people will clearly see we're doing something um, that is pretty different, but also with a lot of love for um, for Penny Marshall's movie. And we talked about that with Penny um, before she passed away, which was an incredible experience. Talk a bit more about those conversations with Penny, because obviously she was a legend and, you know, part and this is part of why she was le a legend. So what what were those conversations like? Yeah, Will and I, we had a pre-call before the call because um, it was very nerve wracking. We're both such fans and admire her work and who she is, who she was. And I was in New York. Will was in L.A. It was like it was a big it was a big moment for us. And I think like. First and foremost, we just wanted to make sure she knew how much we loved the film, how much we love this thing she made. And in doing a reimagining, we just wanted to make sure she knew that and she knew why we were even embarking on this, what stories we wanted to tell and how different we were we were trying to make this. Um, yeah, we were nervous um, and we were in different places, like Gabby said, and we were kind of texting uh, back and forth, like, uh, you know, how is this going to go? And it, it was really an amazing conversation because I don't think if she had been like, I don't want you to do this. I don't know what um, we <laughs> would have done at that point. It was still really early, but it, it probably wouldn't have felt spiritually right to proceed. Yeah. Um, uh, oh with, God, like, can you imagine? Yeah. That would have been terrible. I, mean, I would think we were definitely thinking about that at the I time. Know. Um, she told us that the original cut of the movie, her director's cut was four and a half hours long because there was so much she wanted to include. And even talking about the moment where the character who's roughly based on Mamie Johnson throws the ball back, she was like, I mean, I knew that there was a whole other story there and we just didn't have, we couldn't do it. And I think that was her way of, of trying to nod um, to that. And she told us, you know, these stories changed my life and I think they'll change yours too. And she was absolutely right. I think working on the show, um, creating it for us, for the cast, for the writers, um, even for our crew has been a life-changing um, experience. And we're so grateful to her for, for the movie, but also for her encouragement. And it's worth saying, every member of the original cast of the movie has been so incredibly supportive and I think is excited to see the legacy. I mean, we are part of their legacy and they're excited to see the story sort of open up for a new generation. And we're, we're so appreciative of that. You know, speaking of uh, the new generation here, I was at an, an event for the show this weekend and it was um, a lot of, of young girls, uh, part of uh, a number of programs, including baseball for all, which if you don't know it, 
look it up on Instagram, look it up on the web. It's um, the community that I wish I had found that I that existed when I was a kid and played one season a little league before switching to softball. But in talking with a lot of those parents who were in the stands watching the game while their kids were off getting autographs and everything else, it's so clear to me what just what this show means to this new generation. But when you guys were making that show, did you kind of have that that wash over you of saying, as much as we loved this as queer kids, now you're making that for a new generation. And in this time it's inclusive of them and includes their community too. Yeah, I think we did. I mean, I think, look, we were both queer kids and um, part of the experience of being a queer kid at that time was you, you had to imagine yourself into everything, right? And so you took these crumbs like in a league of their own the movie and you're like oh i think that is me or that kind of rhymes with my experience um and this is a show that is for everyone um but i think hopefully it's universal in a way that also feels like a step forward because it is authentically queer and and we're asking lots of people to relate to those narratives and just getting to talk to um, the kids who are playing now and we had Kelsey Whitmore who's playing in an independent minor league team at our premiere and she said it's incredible for me to get to watch this show because I don't have this team and this league doesn't exist and every day I have to feel like the only one so if it provides a little space for um, people who are playing now to see themselves um, uh, and, and feel like they're part of a team I think we'd be so happy with that. Yeah I mean just my, my own experience, you know, I was the only girl in my little league, you know, I was in seventh grade and they, you know, the chauvinistic coach batted me last, stuck me in right field for the last inning and then told me to lean into the ball and get hit instead and not swing. You know, he treated me like a liability and, you know, it's, it's so moving to see what this show is and, and to be in that community this weekend where most of the girls that were out there are the only one the only girl playing on in their baseball team and none of them want to switch to softball. They want to play the game that they're watching on TV, et cetera. So the movie is, is very PG. It's, it's almost Disney and the series is a little bit spicy. I don't want to say it's, it's, you know, raunchy or adult or anything, but it's a little bit spicy as you were approaching it. Did you sort of view yourselves as, as looking for at a slightly older demographic with this? I think a little bit, but yeah, as you said, there's nothing really, um, yeah, there's it, like, I think maybe the main thing is that the character there's cursing, but there's not really a lot of extreme spice. Um, <laughs> that is Abby's, uh, uh, Abby's uh, pseudonym, extreme yeah, spice. Extreme spice. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think just the way in which like, uh, our tone is, is, is not, it wasn't, it's not like an adult, adult, uh, audience, but I think definitely a little bit more than the film. Um, I think it would be for everyone, maybe except for a little bit of the cursing. Yeah. I think, um, look, we wanted to, uh, to make a show that was for everyone, but also it's a different time than, um, 1992. And I think we did sort of imagine like, parents and teenagers being able to watch this together. At the same time, there's a long history with queer content as being viewed as not family friendly or as mature just because it is um, queer. And I think one thing that we really wanted to do with the show was to challenge that and say like, 
just like the original, this is a story that's pretty wholesome. Hopefully it's smart and it's doing some sophisticated things, but also like you can watch it as a 13 year old, if you're willing to, uh, to ride a couple of F-bombs. Uh, and, um, 13 year olds can handle it. Yeah. With <laughs> parents. And, um, this is a story that's universal and, and wholesome, right? It's not indie or R rated just because the main characters happen to be queer. I want to talk a bit about the the casting process. When in the process did baseball skills or athletic physicality come into the casting process? So we we cast this in the fall of 2019, right before we shot the pilot. And everyone came in with definitely a varied skill set in terms of baseball. I think it mattered a lot to us. And then and then the other skill sets, though, the the acting chops were overridden um, because that ultimately becomes the most important thing. So I think even if someone maybe fibbed a little bit in their audition <laughs> about their baseball skill set and experience, um, we had such great resources in Justine Siegel, who runs baseball for all and her trainers that. Um, we could figure out how to get everyone uh, to be better than where they started. And also we had a lot of help uh, during production. So everyone that needed it had some doubles. We have some movie magic um, as, as any sports film or show I think uses. So it was important and the training was important to get the dynamics of what it feels like to be a player of what it looks like to be a player um, but I think the acting chops. I yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think a lot of that actually came from Abby who played, um, softball and who is usually self-effacing about it. But Justine was like, Abby has real skills. Um, and Darcy also played a lot of the cast, um, played and, um, and, and definitely that was a part of our, um, our casting process. But then there were places where we were like, we have to have this person. Yeah. Uh, and then it became just the normal challenge of making it, uh, anything where you have to really enter a world and a set of physical skills and you have to transform yourself. And Justine worked, um, everyone really hard uh, to do that. But I think it was also a really important process for um, the show, which Abby can speak to more than um, me. It just I think that was also a place where the cast really became a team. Um, and by the time, you know, sometimes it's like everybody shows up on day one and it's like, hi, nice to meet you. Okay, I guess we're doing a television show together. Um, in this case, they'd already spent months together. Yeah, it was a it was a it was major team building, cast building experience. Also, we're being trained by, you know, Will was speaking about Kelsey Whitmer. We're being trained by the modern day version of the characters we're portraying, which it was just pretty incredible. Um yeah, I, and I think it was so essential to embody ball players, to be around ball players and feel what their life is like now in a lot of ways it's it's very similar yeah and i think it was so important to us and to every member of the cast and to justine obviously because she lived it to just capture the grit and authenticity and physicality of these women because they were incredible athletes right and um and some of the best of their time so we just wanted to make sure that came through on screen so uh, abby i want a little i want a little candor here and you don't need to be humble 
who had the best bat of anyone in the cast, who had the best arm of anyone in the cast. And if it's you, feel free to toot your own horn. I think despite uh, Leslie was, you know, I went up to bat once at that game on Sunday and struck out. Um, but uh, it, was a t- it was a tough pitch. I, I don't know. I think I also was just like, I was not planning on playing. If I had gone up again, I would. I think I can hit it. I can hit pretty well. Um, Darcy's pretty good. I think Kelly McCormick probably has the best. Kelly or Roberta probably have the best arm. I think Darcy might be the best bat. Yeah. Um, just to, to, to go back and, and touch on, on what Will said, you know, about that universal experience. You want people to feel what it was like for the players. You know, I'll, I'll tell a quick, quick story myself here, but I actually tried out to be an extra in the pilot way back in pre in the before times with a bunch of my softball teammates, because yes, I still play. And we all kind of had that feeling stepping out onto the field, trying out because Justine from uh, Baseball for All was overseeing the whole tryout. And I think Kelsey was there too. you know, talk about intimidating. It's like we're a bunch of slow pitch, you know, 40 somethings coming out there. And we got worked out for three hours. And I think the next day we were all just like, oh, my God. Um, But it was the same experience. You know, when we all stepped out onto the field to, to try out it, it truly did feel like the scene from the movie and now the scene that, that that's from the show. So I think it is a very similar universal experience too. So, you know, but besides my rambling here, um, I do want to talk about the cameo you know, you do have Rosie O'Donnell in the show here, but, um, and at the same time, you know, obviously you've been, you just did an event with Gina Davis. What, first of all, how much of the show has she seen? Is there a role for her? in a possible season two and how do you, how are you, what kind of feedback are you hearing from people like Gina and, and Lori Petty? Um, I, you know, we, we didn't get a chance. She, I think Gina said she saw the first two episodes. I think, you know, we had spoken to Gina before uh, we made the pilot right around the same time we spoke to Penny for the same reason. We really wanted to make sure she knew how much we loved the movie and how big of fans we were. And we weren't touching Dottie and, you know, I think she was really happy we were not doing the same characters. I, you know, Carson plays catcher. So I am like, uh, I'm not, I'm not Gina Davis. You know, I'm very much not Gina Davis, but um, it, the event at Sinispia was so lovely. I mean, her, her work and her foundation is so in line with what, what we're trying to do on the show and, and representation on screen. And so that felt so in line and uh, I think she was really excited. You know, I don't I don't know her that well, but I think she's really excited. Um, and Rosie, I mean, that was just so special to get to have her. I met Rosie through a friend in 2018 and we went to dinner and I like very nervously mentioned we were working on this. And she said, you're doing a like a queer version of the, this, like good luck. And and then when we actually were going, I reached out to her again and, and asked her to come in in to meet with our writer's room virtually, which was such a special day. She talked to us all about the film, all about what it was like, her experience being gay. You know, Rosie's like a important part of gay American history. And if anyone was hinting at it in the movie, it was Rosie's character. Uh, Whether that was intentional or not, that's what I think any queer person felt. And so to have her in the show was just pretty incredible. Yeah. 
And I think, I mean, we admire the cast and what they did and what the movie did so much. Um, and, and we're just grateful that they've been so supportive, especially Megan Cavanaugh who played Marla Hooch. Um, who's just a, what like, a hitter. Yeah. Just a wonderful, um, person who has watched the whole series and, um, and it really meant a lot to us sort of what she saw, um, and, uh, and what her perspective on it was. And, and I think the same thing with everyone else. But to what you were saying about, like, I think going forward, yeah, we would definitely hope to create space in the show for um, anyone from the original cast who wants to to be connected with it to, to come in. Um, and, you know, if they don't want to be, we respect that uh, that too. But so far, it's, it's really been a wonderful experience getting to talk to them about it. So knowing how the season ends, and we're not going to spoil that here, but how much do you have mapped out for season two? And have you thought about like a, a larger structure? Like will each potential season of the series follow one season of the league? And then the end of the show is the end of the league. Well, the league ran for till for 10 years, right? Will? 1954. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that would be quite a run for us. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if we have anything specifically mapped out like that, but we're, um, what do you think, Will? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we have a lot of ideas. L like we said, um, the challenge as soon as we started to work on season one of the show wasn't what are we going to do? It's how are we going to start <laughs> this? Because there's so much to these stories. And obviously Max's story is just getting started and Carson's story is just getting started. But there is a larger um, story here about this moment in time starting in World War II when all the rules changed uh, and then um, in 1945 when the war ended some of the rules started to come back and some of them didn't but that didn't change people's dreams and it didn't change the way that they had been changed by their experiences and there really is a story here of a generational shift but also of people in this moment that is kind of dark and is unstable. And when the world is changing so rapidly, finding themselves and finding opportunity in, in that chaos that I think is something we really wanna um, tap into. So I think we have a, a lot of ideas about where the series is going and where it ends. But at the same time, our approach to season one was not to use a bad, it's almost impossible to not wind up using bad baseball puns um, when you talk about this, but was to, leave it all in the field and just say, if this is the only season that we get to do of this, let's make sure that we really feel like we did it. And if we're lucky enough to get to do a season two and three and four, I think we'll take the exact same approach um, to that. And we like to wrap these interviews with the same question. What have you guys been watching and enjoying on TV lately? I can answer that question very easily as Abby knows, because I have been very deep in For All Mankind. Oh, um, I didn't know what you, what you were going to, I thought you were going to say Drag Race. Well, I, <laughs> I was like, you talk about Drag Race all the time. Well, how you doubted me. Um, and yes, I did. Probably the most, the funniest moment of the premiere for me was um, we invited some of the cast members from Drag Race, uh, including Simone, uh, who showed up and I was like, I don't know how to speak in this moment. And then Shantae came over and was like, oh my God. And we both, <laughs> um, that was a, a real moment. But um, I've been watching For All Mankind, uh, which um, is an incredible show that's also doing some really interesting things with time 
and uh, with history that also uh, stars Abby's fiance, Jody, um, among a lot of other talented people. And it's really inspiring. And it's a great example of how just TV in general is doing something really different than it has before and, and taking some big shots. So I'm really enjoying that, although I'm not all the way caught up yet. So please don't spoil. What's well, good? I'm not going to spoil it, but I also, I mean, I, I'm like pretty biased, but I think, I think this season in particular, and like the last, the last episode that aired last week of For All Mankind was, I'm not going to spoil it, but was pretty incredible, especially Jody's character. Uh, do you guys watch For All Mankind? I I'm behind. do. <laughs> it's, that was like a, inc- that was, I'm so proud of Jody. That was like the most incredible scene. I'm not going to spoil it, but for those who know, no, I just was sort of wowed. No, it's, I'm still um, just starting season three. And it's funny to be like, um, Jody, I heard here you had a really incredible scene and did a great job, which I don't know the specifics of yet. And please don't tell them to me. Well, it's <laughs> a really like important queer character queer storyline i think the creators and writers of that show did that character justice in a way that uh, you, i don't think you see a lot it, it it uh and yeah i was just really excited about it excellent well thank you guys so much for joining us on the podcast we appreciate it thanks for having us for thank having you guys the eight-episode first season of League of Their Own is now streaming on Amazon's Prime Video. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got Lock and Key and Never Have I Ever on Netflix. You just heard our interview with the creators of A League of Their Own, which debuts Friday on Amazon. Hulu has the Chris Estrada comedy This Fool. AMC debuts episodic anthology Tales of the Walking Dead. Resident Alien is back for its sophomore run on Sci-Fi. And The Miss Pat Show is back on BET+. Dan, lots to choose from this week. What you got? Surprise Emmy nominee, The Miss Pat Show. Um, yeah, some, some of these things I simply have not got to drink. Uh, I'm looking forward to watching episodes of Never Have I Ever. I have not gotten anywhere near them <laughs> leslie is giving a solid thumbs up to them so looking forward to them i like that show a lot in principle i like that show a lot and hopefully will like the third season as well i have not it's watched. cute that's Can, it continues to be cute that is all i look forward to um i am also going to watch tales of the walking dead our our colleague angie han is reviewing it uh i'm not sure i'm looking forward to it on the same level but it definitely is a thing <laughs> So, yes, other things premiering. Well, uh, let's see. On Friday, you have the premiere of Five Days at Memorial, which is Apple TV Plus, and it comes from the really impressive powerhouse duo of John Ridley and Carlton Cuse. And it is... People will remember the title if people are only TV fans and not fans of books and journalism and stuff. Uh, because the book, which was by Sherry Fink, was going to be the basis of the Ryan Murphy American Crime Story season that was going to focus on Hurricane Katrina. And they'd done some casting, they'd done some preparations, and ultimately they determined that it was simply too difficult to find a way from the small story into the bigger Hurricane Katrina stories that they wanted to tell. Entirely fair. 
So the series does indeed take a, a slightly smaller story to be used as a microcosm of a much bigger story. So the premise is that there was a hospital in, in New Orleans where five days after Hurricane Katrina, when people finally were able to come and help the doctors and the patients out, 45 bodies were discovered in the hospital. And so the question was raised in extensive legal circumstances, etc. Did they die as direct result of the storm? Did they die as tangential result of the storm? Were they put to death out of mercy or ineptitude or who knows what? It is a it is a bunch of big moral and ethical questions tied to a gigantic tragedy that was a tragedy that was very partially natural, but also institutional and structural as well. Uh, the first five episodes, which go basically day by day through the five days in the title leading up to Katrina and then after Katrina, I, I thought were really, really powerful. It's it's a kind of a fly on the wall thing, and you are immersed in a, an unfathomable horror that no one was prepared for. And we see the people who were supposed to be, if not prepared, coordinating, and they're played by Jerry Jones and Julianne Emery, and so they're basically in over their head. They have these emergency binders that make no mention of what to do if you have to evacuate an entire hospital and its patients as part of a horrible flood. Because, you know, there's only so much horrible stuff you can foresee. And so some of the things that happened here were foreseeable, others were not. And as it goes along, you see all of the awful things that were happening. The the power goes out, it and humidity was ninety percent, and it was you know it was summer in in New Orleans. So it, you're you're being dropped into a nightmare, and I think it does a very very good job of that. And the first five episodes were all written by and directed by as individuals, Carlton Cuse and John Ridley. The last three episodes kind of become an investigation into the thing. And the trial around one of the doctors who's played here by Vera Farmiga. And to me, it loses its way rather dramatically. The, the focus lapses. The ability to look critically lapses somewhat. It, it becomes at times almost frustratingly simplistic, which I, you know, definitely a story like this should Definitely not. Uh, but I thought the first five episodes were were really excellent. So, you know, and but also if you feel as if you've seen enough different versions of this story or you've watched the Spike Lee documentaries, etc., maybe you just don't want to spend eight hours in in this very, very unpleasant world. And that's entirely justifiable. I understand. So that is Five Days of Memorial on Apple TV+. Plus. Speaking of stories that you've probably seen and worlds that you've probably spent maybe too much time in, uh, next Monday you have the premiere of Hulu's 10-part Legacy from Antoine Fuqua, and it is the story of the Los Angeles Lakers from 1979 to the present day. And you might be thinking, wait, haven't I seen that story in Winning Time on HBO? And you might be thinking, wait, haven't I seen nearly that story in They Call Me Magic, a four-part documentary series on Apple TV+. And the answer to that question is yes, 
Yes, you have. Particularly the first few episodes. The first episode in particular is the exact same story that Winning Time tells across its first uh, season. And it's the exact same story that, uh, that They Call Me Magic tells across several of its early episodes. As it goes along, it becomes significantly more about kind of the idea of these dual families, the idea of the Lakers as a family of players, but also the bus family that's running the Lakers. Well, the bus family or several of them are also producers on this documentary. And you can take a step back and think, hmm, that seems shady, but it doesn't exactly hide from the bickering and the family whatevers. Only six episodes have been sent to critics and Honestly, the show becomes so much more dramatically interesting when it finally gets past basically the Showtime years. The Showtime years at this point, I do not need to hear the exact same stories about the Showtime years of the Lakers ever again. I I just don't. But at around episode five, it starts looking at the years after Magic's HIV diagnosis, the couple years wandering in the desert, but then the arrival of of Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant, Phil Jackson, etc. It becomes significantly more interesting. Also, in the first couple of years, the bus children were children, or if not children, they were teens in the case of Genie Bus or early 20s. The things they were doing were mostly learning the family business, which is not exciting. When you get to the midpoint in the series, they actually start running the business, and it really does become a little bit kind of Game of Thrones cutthroaty as who's going to run various endeavors. That's kind of interesting. Even if you know that some of these people are producers on the documentary, and that is inevitably going to mean something. We also haven't really seen the full in-depth documentary on the Shaq and Kobe rivalry and how they were able to get past it. And so seeing those details and those conversations in documentary form, it, it does become significantly more interesting. Inevitably, the version of the story that they tell is going to be hindered by the fact that Kobe Bryant isn't alive to tell his story at this point. So everybody is, of course, treating Kobe reverentially, but, but it's still, it's a two part, it's a two person story or a two person rivalry that's presented really and truly only kind of from one side. And then everyone else is protecting the legacy of the other person. You understand why that's the instinct, but you also understand why that is a stumbling block. So I think the game, and I'm still working on my review as we do this, is to kind of figure out how to put the pieces together so that you get the best version of this story and the least redundancy. I think the best way to do it is watch Winning Time. I also have to add that these couple documentaries that have followed Winning Time have done a really good job of illustrating how much of winning time is very, very accurate. And so you have people talking about how impatient and frustrated Jerry West was in this documentary. I I don't think that's what Jerry West is going to want to see on TV if there's actually ever going to be a lawsuit about whatever. No one says he threw a trophy through a window or some of that other stuff. But you can see how every aspect of what was in the series came from somewhere. So, So I'd say watch Winning Time. Then watch this, and then if you're curious about Magic Johnson's career subsequently as an entrepreneur, watch the fourth episode of They Call Me Magic. But it's kind of funny because Magic Johnson is actually in many ways more candid in Legacy than he was in the documentary that was 100% about him. So anyway, so let's get to some other fun stuff. You just heard our interview with the producers of League of Their Own. 
I, I'm sort of of several minds about this one. I think it is a totally enjoyable series to watch. I've watched half of it. But, um, our colleague Angie Han reviewed it, so I watched enough to feel like I had a pretty good sense of what it was. Um, I think mostly for me, it works because so many of the performances are so good and so likable. And it's it, the, the show is really just full of... People who you like or people who, if you don't know you like them, you're going to find out you like them after watching it. And so, you know, there are the obvious answers, Darcy Carden and Abby Jacobson, but you, chances are pretty good that you know that you like them coming in anyway. Other people surely will feel that they already knew that they liked Roberta Calindrez. Uh, I think she is a lot of fun here. A, a lot of the supporting cast and not just supporting cast stars. Uh, Shantae Adams is very, very good. It took, it's a whole full cast of people who I was being constantly like, wait, I think I know that person from somewhere. Why can I not place them? Oh, duh. Of course it's that person. So like Molly Ephraim, who I always liken things, uh, she has bleached blonde hair here. And so thus, as a result of that as her secret disguise, it took me a while to recognize her. Then I did. I was like, sure. Excellent. That's awesome. Uh, Melanie Field, who's been in many, many things over the years. Um, I, I just, for whatever reason, rarely remember her name, but I often like her when she pops up in things. She's very good here. It's a, it's a really good cast. A, a, at times, it is probably too hung up on the movie and not just, you know, you heard them talking about the specific references in our interview, but kind of the tone of it and, and sort of soundtrack choices. They, they end episodes with more modern songs. And I really actually found myself appreciating that as a choice because otherwise it's kind of the same 1940s soundtrack of kind of big band hits and whatever that, that have become a little bit of a cliche. So, um, so there's there's a lot of that and 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 it causes fatigue in some directions to set in uh but in general i i found it appealing the baseball scenes are fun it is you know straight up and pure underdog sports story which i will always be a sucker for again i've watched four episodes i will uh definitely watch the rest just not immediately because there's a lot of tv but i will definitely watch the rest um while i know leslie that you are not formerly a tv critic everyone also knows that this is a property that uh is very very close to your heart do you have anything you want to say about a league of their own yeah i think you hit the nail on the head there dan but you know I i've seen the full season um i look league of their own the original movie is one of my favorites um if not my number one um, I remember when I was a kid, the movie was coming out. Um, they, Penny Marshall and a bunch of members of the surviving, uh, All American Girls Professional Baseball League, um, were part of a touring exhibit from the, from the Hall of Fame about women in baseball. And I went by myself. I think I was 17, maybe, and met Penny, watched the documentary that inspired the movie, met a bunch of the players, got autographs. It was, incredible and i also tried out to be an extra as you heard during our interview um on this show and it really did feel the same way as 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 what it must have been like for those women to step foot onto a field and try out um that said i really like the show um i feel like it's very very beholden to the movie in the first half but i think once it kind of frees itself from those shackles it becomes something that's bigger 
and something that's a little bit more special. Whereas, you know, obviously the movie has these undertones that maybe Rosie O'Donnell's character was was gay. And obviously, you know, the the scene with the black woman in the throw and how that signifies that women of color were not allowed to try out, let alone be in the league, and they had their own journey. This really leans hard into that. And once it kind of takes them, you know, once it moves beyond what the movie was, it's a it represents something truly special, and then it really becomes its own thing. And I really, really like that. So I, I would say that the second half is much better than the first half. But to really enjoy, to really appreciate it, you got to get through the whole thing. So it's like watching Parks and Rec, where you know you want to binge the whole thing, and even though season one is awful, you got to get through season one to really appreciate the whole thing. So that's a weird comparison, but I really like the show, and I think Abby has great heart in the show. And as you said, the supporting cast is spectacular. Um, I, I really liked it. Some of the baseball stuff, it's like you can kind of see, you know, different stuff in the background, some movie magic happening. And uh, yeah, I, I, I really liked the show. And I, I was I was very, very nervous to watch it. I actually put it off for a long time because I was very scared that I wasn't going to like it. But that's not the case here. And last but not least, among new things coming out uh, this weekend, um, I really enjoyed this fool on on Hulu. It's uh, it's kind of broad at times, kind of silly at times. Sometimes you feel like it's going right down the line towards stereotype, but it avoids it. the The show was created by uh, star and creator, um, co-creator rather, Chris Estrada. He created it with a bunch of the guys who were behind Corporate, a very, very funny show on Comedy Central. Um, And this is less kind of dark and droll than that. It's it's often much broader. And the premise is uh, you have a guy who works at sort of a halfway house type program for uh, former prisoners trying to reintegrate themselves into society at the same time in his own home, his cousin uh, returns home from prison and they clash, but he's having lots of problems in his own life. The title refers to both the main character and also to his cousin, really and truly to almost everyone in the show. This is a show populated in big hearted fashion by fools. Um, but it's it it's a show that is sometimes extraordinarily lowbrow. It's also a show that sometimes does things that are very, very subversively smart. Uh, the episodes are, I would not say they are wildly even. And I think that the first episode has a lot of premise setting that it needs to do. Uh, but it is, um, it, there, there are some episodes that do really, really, really silly, funny things that I, I, I was impressed by. And I also have to say that this series features, uh, my favorite use of explosive diarrhea as a way of checking a relationship status since the first season of Dave. I don't know that I've seen another show that has done it since the first season of Dave, but, I still support that as a as an aesthetic decision, um, not necessarily as a, a medical condition, but you know, whatever. Sometimes these things just happen. <laughs> so, um, yes. So I like this fool. It's very funny, and it it has a voice. It has a voice that is completely distinctive. Um, I like League of Their Own on Amazon, not as much as Leslie does, but you also heard our great interview. I think the interview will do a very good job of giving you a sense of if this is a world that you want to dive into. Chances are that if you have a deep affection for the movie, you will both want to dive into the world, but also maybe 
you know, also just want to go find the movie and watch it. Um, yeah, and I'll be curious what you think of the show after you finish the whole season, Dan. Someday I will get there, I promise. I, I definitely will. Um, so yeah, Five Days at Memorial on Apple TV+. Plus. Really dug the first five episodes. Didn't think that the last three were as good. And then I gave you some <clears throat> sort of very convoluted way in which you should watch all of this spring's various programming about the Los Angeles Lakers. But I also need to step back and say we really and truly did not need three major productions in a four-month period covering the rise and fall of the Showtime Lakers. Somebody at a certain point needs to needs to watch what's happening in other places and say, yeah, we just don't need four versions of this exact same show. But that's just how these things go. All for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to the Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. As a little special programming note, we definitely are going to want to do a mailbag segment next week's podcast. So you can email us your questions about Anything that we've discussed in recent weeks or really anything months? else. Months. Years. Anything you're curious about. Who baseball. Knows? Sure, why not? We could even answer a baseball question. You can email us those questions at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Going back to my normal spiel, you can subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It does help spread the word of mouth. And we're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. Come say hi. And in case you've forgotten from when I said it 45 seconds ago, the email for mailbag questions. That would be TV's Top 5 at THR.com. TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.